Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Well, America's fourth turning has arrived. I'm going to dig into that in a moment. And we're still in, I think, really significant danger from Donald Trump, his extremist followers, and the right-wing billionaires who fund him. Professor Richard Wolf will be with us today. But I wanted to start with America's fourth turning. Some years ago, in fact, I think it was 1997, as I recall, William Howe, who has now passed away, and Neil Strauss wrote a brilliant book. It was called The Fourth Turning. And what they pointed out was that roughly every four generations, every 80 years, America kind of goes through a reboot. And, you know, the first one was in 1776, and we became America. We rebooted away from the oligarchs who ran the British Empire. Eighty years after that, in, in 1861, uh, the, you know, with the Civil War, roughly 80 years, four generations after that, the oligarchs of the South rose up and tried to turn America from a democracy into an oligarchy. We fought them back and we rebooted again. Eighty years after that, the oligarchs rose up with the so-called businessman's coup, where they actually tried to recruit a Marine General, Smedley Butler, to overthrow Franklin Roosevelt. They had 500,000 men that they were ready to march on the White House and capture, kill, kidnap. We still don't know the details because FDR put a stop to the congressional investigations after two weeks. But apparently to take down Roosevelt, he stopped that. And he spoke about them at some length afterwards you know, calling them out. He, in fact, he said, for out of this, this was in 1936 in Philadelphia, he said, for out of this modern civilization, economic royalists carved new dynasties, new kingdoms were built upon concentration of control over material things. It was natural and perhaps human that the privileged princes of these new economic dynasties thirsting for power reached out for control of government itself. Well, he beat them. He defeated them. And here we are again. We thought that the crisis of climate change, which literally has our country on fire right now, 
And the crisis of the collapse of the middle class, even though the latest economic numbers, they were just released today, suggest that the economy is back to where it was two years ago, or a year and a half, yeah, basically two years ago, before the pandemic. But still, the middle class is in crisis. We still have fewer than half of Americans even in the middle class for the first time since the 1940s. And this is the result of 40 years of Reaganomics. And so we thought, you know, we Democrats, we, we Americans, we thought that the Democrats had a fix for this, for both these problems, for the climate change problem and for the economy problem. And this was this $3.5 trillion infrastructure uh, legislation that uh, the Democrats are proposing to pass through reconciliation in addition to the roughly $1 trillion, it's actually only $500 billion of new money. A lot of it now is repurposing money from the stimulus that was passed just a few months ago. You know, taking this trillion dollars of new money and putting that into hard infrastructure, that's the bill that the so-called problem solvers have worked out, or at least say they've worked out. I mean, you know, the devil's in the details. We don't have a final bill yet. So I'm still, t I'm, my position is that that thing was never going to pass. It's not going to pass now. This is just the only reason that the Republicans and people like Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin are going along with this right now is to try to cause Americans to think that the much larger $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill, which also includes things like rebuilding our schools and, and getting people back to work and I mean, just uh, human infrastructure as well as our physical infrastructure, they're trying to take down both of them. I mean, Donald Trump is out there saying just that little tiny, you know, $550 billion, $1 trillion, whichever you want to call it, bill that Cinema Mansion said, yeah, we can do this. You know, that's a joke. And Trump's saying, you know, that should not be passed. So I'm telling you, the Republicans and the billionaires who own them are going to do everything they can to beat this back, to fight this. And... You know, this is a time of crisis for America. And I really believe that we are now on the verge of this fourth turning. Every 80 years, we hit an economic crash, which is always brought about by billionaire overreach, whether it was the, the billionaires of that day. Obviously, it wasn't billions, but, you know, an inflation-adjusted dollars. The East India Company oligarchs that we fought, you know, that the, the Boston Tea Party targeted and that we fought the Revolutionary War against, whether it was the Southern oligarchs, the slave owners, who we fought a civil war against, whether it was the oligarchs who FDR put in a box. And by the way, he really did put them in a box. He started enforcing the antitrust laws and he raised the top tax rate to 91%. Or whether it's the oligarchs today, in every single case, the economy gets crashed by these greedy people, these greedy, essentially sociopaths or psychopaths. And, and as a consequence of that crash, you know, this is the, the crash happens because they are trying to acquire as much political power and as much wealth as they possibly can. And, you know, when FDR, he said, these, these economic royalists complain that we seek to overthrow the institutions of America. What they really complain about is that we seek to take away their power. And then he added as the crowd just went nuts. And our allegiance to American institutions requires the overthrow of this kind of power. 
And then he went on. I mean, this was 80 years ago. He died 76 years ago this year. He said, in vain, they seek to hide behind the flag and the Constitution in their blindness. They forget what the flag and the Constitution stand for. Now, as always, they stand for democracy, not tyranny, for freedom, not subjection, and against a dictatorship by mob rule and the overprivileged alike. 80 years, here we are, back again, confronting these billionaire oligarchs. Um, you know, back during the Dust Bowl, uh, it was such a challenge. And now, you know, cinema comes out and says, as I said, the Democrats thought that they had this $3.5 trillion deal. They thought all 50 of the Democrats in the Senate were on board. Yesterday afternoon, Kirsten Cinema announced uh, that uh, she does not support this $3.5 trillion bill. This includes climate change initiatives. It includes expanding Medicare. It, it expands disability leave. It expands family leave. It expands elder care. It makes education at both pre-K and community college levels more affordable. All of these things. And Kirsten Sinema just came out and said, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Now, you know, my personal opinion is either she's getting big money from, from the Koch network and the other right-wing billionaires out there, or she's figuring when the voters kick her out in 2024, which looks pretty inevitable. She's, she is 24 points underwater overall in Arizona among all voters and uh, among Democratic voters. Uh, I mean, she's really, to quote, let's see who wrote this, Carrie Elevald over at Daily Coast, she's really sucking wind. She has a 23% approval rating among Democrats in Arizona right now. Compare that with Mark Kelly, her colleague, who has an 89% approval rating among Democrats in Arizona. But, you know, I, I, maybe she's going to try and pull a Paul Ryan, get a multi-million dollar job and move million. He moved $7 million out of his campaign account into his little personal pack or his uh, foundation or outlet or whatever it was, outfit. She's going to do one or the other, right? She's going to be rich for the rest of her life now that she has done the, the oligarchs bidding and, uh, you know, this is just sad. And uh, frustrating isn't even, infuriating is the word. That, you know, everybody, you know, Bernie called into the show about this last Thursday. Hey, you know, it looks like we've got this thing, you know, three and a half billion dollars. And now some of the Democrats in the Progressive Caucus, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeting this morning, you know, Kirsten Cinema. if you think you're going to blow up that $3.5 trillion bill, we're going to blow up your bill, your $1 trillion bill. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So maybe the entire thing is going to go to hell because Kirsten Cinema couldn't get her act together. This is insane. Los Angeles. Hey, Ronald, what's up? Hey, Tom, how's it going? A lot of stuff out here since Biden got elected, and I'm, I'm happy with the result, obviously, but it seems like there, for instance, my cousin, he's going back to school, and, you know, there was like an eight-hour, you know, like pre, essentially before the, the, the year got started, there was like this whole eight-hour, 250-plus, like, speaker podium 
which was talking about whether or not ethnic studies should be taught. And then that became like a weeks long issue with critical race theory. And then out here every other week, there's been some type of like white lives matter or like Marjorie Taylor green, Matt Gates adjacent event. Yeah. And it seems like if, if this is happening in Southern California, I don't know if this is happening. I feel like it's the ripples must be crazier across the country. But is this something to really worry about, or is this just a phase that's going to pass? That's a good question, Ronald, and I don't know the answer to it. The Republican Party for, well, we're, let's see, this is August, so we're basically eight months into the Biden presidency. And they have gone through about maybe two dozen different outrages du jour, you know, things where they just get, they'd get all fluffed up about and yell and scream about, and it would be all over the right-wing headlines, and Fox News would be jumping all over it. And then, you know, that one didn't work, and so they go on to the next one, and that one didn't work, and so they go on to the next one. And it looks like with critical race theory, they may have succeeded in flipping out, you know, enough right-wing, hardcore right-wing parents, and they're starting to try to take control of school boards and things like this, you know, arguing that this thing that isn't even taught in our public schools is like some existential threat to America. It's a shout out to the white supremacists. And I think that they're gonna continue that, but what I'm seeing, Ronald, and maybe I'd get your temperature on this, get your take on this. I'm thinking that this is the this is the last gasp of the white supremacist fringe in the Republican Party, which has now is, is probably more than half of the Republican Party, but it's still less than a third of America. So I think that they're going to have some impact. Um, I think with regard to California, the biggest concern is that they're pushing this recall of Newsom. And that's all going to depend yeah. on turnout. And if the Republicans show up in big numbers and the Democrats go, oh, you know, he's a good governor. Well, you know, I'm fine with him. I, so, but, they're, but they're not going to show up and vote for him because they figure, you know, who's, who's going to be crazy enough to kick this guy out? He's doing a good job. And then it turns out the Republicans are crazy enough to kick him out. That, uh, you know, it could be, it could throw California into chaos, which of course is their goal. But it seems to me like what you're looking at is the loud fringe. Is that your sense of it? Yeah, it seems like it, because even when, when, when there's like an ideological issue, like there was this big uproar about Prop 47, mm -hmm. and uh, immediately it was a straw man like, oh, Gavin Newsom has uh, legalized, you know, like, like stealing things. You know, this is why all of these different stores are closing down, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And once, once there was uh, like an issue on the table and there was a debate about it, I think there was something like, a little over 60% of the conservatives liked the fact that there was a little over a $100 million surplus that could go back into the communities. Right, right. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So, I, you know, I, it's something that we all need to pay attention to and we need to push back on and we need to expose and we need to fight. But I, I don't see that as the big, th the, the most existential threat. I think the most existential threat, frankly, is the right-wing billionaire class who's funding all this stuff. Ronald, thank you for the yeah. call. It's good to hear from you. I appreciate it. Thanks for watching us on YouTube. I also want to highlight, you know, my opening rant was basically about the right-wing billionaire class and how they've captured Kirsten Cinema and apparently Joe Manchin as well. It's, you know, the fossil fuel interest mostly. And perhaps a few of the other Democrats, and that's blocking progress. Now, that's kind of the bad news. The good news is that if we can't make things happen in the next year and a half, the next 18 months, there's going to be an election next November, a year from this November, in roughly 18 months from now, or even less than that, maybe 15 months from now. And in that election, you've got, 
you know, a whole bunch of Republicans up for re-election or to fill seats for retiring. You know, Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania is retiring, and you've got Fetterman, a really strong Democrat. He's, I believe he's the attorney general uh, right now, maybe the secretary of state, one or the other, in Pennsylvania. He's running for that seat. You've got Rob Portman in Ohio, who's retiring. There's some strong candidates. Tim Ryan's probably the strongest candidate running for that seat. So, you know, maybe we can pick up a couple of seats in the 2022 election in the Senate, and we won't have to worry about what Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin have to say. But right now, we've got to deal with that. So, so that was my, my opening rant. But there's a second step to this, and that is the right-wing crazies who are following Donald Trump and who don't believe in democracy. And this, I think, is, is another existential threat to America, and that's the authoritarian threat. The, the not just Trump followers, but the Republican followers and these right-wing Republican sites. They are just all over trying to, trying to support the states that are putting into place literally anti-democratic, both big D and small d. Anti, they're anti-democracy laws to make it harder to vote and to, and to give election officials the power to say, uh, you know, Fulton County, Georgia, uh, it's a lot of black people there. I'm not sure that I trust the vote coming out of there. We think there's fraud. We're just not going to count some of those votes. Keep in mind, when Trump started yelling about election fraud, and this does not get mentioned anywhere near enough in the media, Trump's whole rant about election fraud was not that there was, hey, election fraud all across the country. It was that there was election fraud in black parts of the country. The county in, in Arizona with the largest black population, Maricopa County, is the only county that, the, that they're running a so-called audit on in Arizona right now. Trump said, you know, it's, it, it all happened in, in Pittsburgh and in Philadelphia, right? Large black populations in Pennsylvania. It all happened in Detroit, in Michigan, large black population. It all happened in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, large black population. Every single, literally every single city where Trump was claiming there was election fraud was a, a majority black city. Atlanta, of course, uh, Fulton County. Every single one. And now you've got one third of the states in the United States have passed legislation to make it possible to essentially ignore, overturn, not count, purge, so those people, so people can't vote to begin with, the people from those very places all across the United States. Thomas Mann, who is a senior fellow at Washington's Brookings Institution and a resident scholar at UC Berkeley, uh, came, came forward and he says, America is on the precipice we are in danger of losing our democracy, thanks to Trump and these extremists that he has empowered. He said, we've always had extremist groups on the left as well as the right, but they've always been marginalized or co-opted to become more moderate. This is the first time in the history of America a set of forces like this has actually won the White House and tried to steal it a second time, which is exactly what Trump tried to do. And now he says, if Trump had won that second term, we would have passed Hungary pretty quickly in becoming an autocratic world and a dangerous world, end quote. He adds, the GOP has become an insurgent outlier in American politics. Ideologically extreme, scornful of compromise, unmoved by facts, evidence, and science, dismissive of the legitimacy of the political opposition. 
This is a dangerous moment. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. How do we turn this back? Obviously, we need leadership from Washington, D.C., but we also need leadership on the ground. That's you and me. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hartman University Book Club today, we're reading from It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America by David K. Johnston. This is from page 61, the chapter titled Forgetting the Forgotten Man. In 2010, the U.S. Department of Labor created a website to honor workers who died on the job. Quote, more than 4,500 workers lose their lives on the job every year. Below are the names of just a few who have died in recent months. OSHA's mission is to prevent workplace injuries, illnesses, and death, end quote. That Occupational Safety and Health Administration webpage was intended to highlight and humanize workplace deaths to ensure awareness of tragedies, especially those that could have been avoided, according to Jordan Barab, an assistant secretary of labor during the Obama administration. Barab explained, without information like this, fatality statistics are just raw, sterile numbers. The purpose of adding names and circumstances was to impress people with the tragedy that workers and their families face day after day. In August 2017, Trump's Labor Department quietly removed the preamble and the names when it killed the web page. It also took down, without public announcement, the fatality inspection data for all years prior to 2017. Those are just two of many other Trump administration actions inimical to worker safety. Others included no longer posting press releases about deaths resulting from unsafe working conditions, delaying rules to reduce sickness and death from inhaling silica and beryllium at work, delaying rules to lower the risk of railroad engineers and truck drivers falling asleep at the switch or wheel because of untreated sleep apnea, and the appointment of a, to the Supreme Court of a judge who held that a company had the right to fire a worker who chose not to freeze to death on the job. A reasonable person listening to Donald Trump's inaugural address would never have expected these and other actions, assuming he believed what Trump said. Trump declared, the forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no more. You came by the tens of millions to become part of a historic movement, the likes of which the world has never seen before. At the center of this movement is a crucial conviction that a nation exists to serve its citizens, end quote. Those men and women were forgotten again the following week. 
And it's not just workers whose interests were forgotten, not to mention who were put in danger. By deciding not to implement a rule to reduce the chances of truck drivers and train operators falling asleep at the wheel, Trump put at risk the lives of families driving along the highway, people riding on passenger trains, and many others. The White House called it President Trump's war on regulation. In his weekly radio address in early May, he declared that we've removed one job-killing regulation after another, and they're not pretty, and they're going. And believe me, we're just getting started on regulations. They're gone. Removal of data on workplace deaths, which averaged 13 per day, infuriated Jordan Barab, who was Obama's number two at OSHA. As a private citizen, Barab created a web page to keep track of the names of the dead and the reasons they were killed on the job. He called it, OSHA won't tell you who died in the workplace, we will. After the election, Barab's concerns that the Trump administration would be bad for workers increased when he asked where the Trump beachhead team was and learned that none was coming. Each incoming administrator sends people to scope out federal agencies, learn who does what, and get a feel for the place in advance. Then the incoming administration sends its landing team, the people who will initially implement its policies, for each agenda. Ready to agency. When no beachhead team came up, Barab figured it meant worker safety simply was not a priority for Trump. He hoped that was the worst of it, nothing more than apathy about worker safety. But when the landing team arrived, Barab real, realized trouble was coming for American workers. And it was not official apathy, but the start of assaults on workers' rights and safety. Barab said most of them had no idea they were going to labor and no interest in workers' issues either. What they did have was a mandate to delay, repeal, or weaken regulations that protected workers as part of Trump's plan to eliminate, quote, any regulation that is outdated, unnecessary, bad for workers, or contrary to the national interest, end quote. The first sign came when Trump nominated Judge Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. Gorsuch was an acolyte of Antonin Scalia, whose seat he would be taking. Like Scalia, he said statutes should be literally read, and if that made no sense, well, that was a problem for Congress. Also like Scalia, he had a habit of consulting dictionaries, often following Scalia's practice of relying on the third, fourth, or even lesser definition of a word when it supported his jurisprudence. Trump's nomination alarmed unions. Jody Calamine, a communications worker of America lawyer, told Gorsuch's Senate confirmation hearing that Gorsuch, quote, is a threat to working people's health and safety, end quote. Calamine cited Gorsuch's dissent in the 2016 case to make his point. That dissent, he said, reveals an anti-worker bias and features a judicial activism that will ultimately put workers' lives at risk, end quote. Those are unusually strong words about a Supreme Court nominee, but a review of the case shows Gorsuch has little regard for human life, at least when it comes to employers' power over their workers. He considers a rigid interpretation of the law more important. The case was about a law Congress passed giving workers the right to refuse dangerous tasks. Gorsuch said, no, you may not refuse. It's even worse than you think by David K. Johnston. So what are your thoughts on where this is all going? And, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm actually as doom and gloomish as, as I may have sounded in the first half of this hour, you know, pointing out that we've got psychopathic billionaires who have largely captured the Republican Party and a few Democrats as well. 
and and pointing out that you know we've faced these kinds of severe crises now this is the fourth time in our history literally the fourth turning to quote Strauss and how the title of their book I'm seeing also a Republican Party that because of the corruption by right-wing psychopathic billionaires whether it's the billionaires who funded Trump explicitly because they loved his white supremacist message, or whether it's the billionaires who are just funding the, you know, your mainstream so-called conservative politicians, the, you know, the, the, the business crowd who are funding the Paul Ryans of the world and are now funding the Kirsten Cinemas and Joe Manchins of the world. Their overreach inevitably leads to extremism and general craziness, and we're hearing that. We're, we're, we're seeing, I mean, you got Kevin McCarthy right now standing in front of Congress yelling at Nancy, Nancy Pelosi for wanting to have masks, for wanting to have people wear masks in Congress to protect the members, including the half of the Republicans who refuse to say if they're vaccinated, and to protect the staff. It's a workplace. We've got a, a dozen major co corporations now, including like Facebook and Google and, and Lyft and, uh, you know, who have said in Saks Fifth Avenue and, and uh, uh, one of the major banks, I, I don't recall if it was Goldman Sachs or, or one of the other ones, who have all now put into place vaccine mandates. If you want to work in this place of business, you must be vaccinated. We have that here. Everybody on our staff is vaccinated. Actually, I didn't have to mandate it. I've got smart people working for me. So I didn't even have to say, you must. You know, it was like, hey, how do we, you know, everybody was, they were ahead of me. But, you know, the Republicans are just melting down around this stuff because they're, they're just desperately grasping. Oh, is it critical race theory? Oh, are those police officers who are testifying just drama queens and, and, and crisis actors? Oh, it was actually they, the, the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th were hugging and kissing the police. You know, quack, 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 right? And America is watching this. And I don't think it's going to go well for the Republicans in the 2022 elections. And we're seeing now the obstruction of things that will fix this, not just by Republicans, but now by Kirsten Cinema as well. And, I, you know, I, I just, I think politically their days are numbered. I really do believe that change is, we're, you know, we, we thought change was coming with the Biden administration and he's done a lot of great stuff and they've passed a lot of, uh, you know, many good things. But I, I'm actually very optimistic I'm, I'm very concerned about climate change and how bad it is. It's going to be 100 degrees here again this weekend. We've got another one of these heat domes. We've got to do something about this. But that said, you know, if, my, if Michael Mann is right, you know, we still have a couple years to stop anything totally irreversible. Now, I, I, you know, I... I go back and forth thinking, you know, very hopefully, yes, that's true. And thinking on and then on the other hand, thinking eh, maybe we've passed the point of no return. I honestly don't know. But, you know, you don't stop trying. We've got to do everything we can. Anyhow, let me pick up your phone calls here. Teresa in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Teresa, what's on your mind? Oh, hi, Tom. Hey, I really appreciate your uh, focus on climate change. That's that's so important. Um, I have an analogy that I like to tell people about climate change. I, I like to say, okay, it's like we're all in a car and, you know, someone's driving. I don't know who in this analogy, but 
there's a cliff ahead, and instead of putting on the brakes, the driver is putting on the accelerator. It's like we are still increasing our carbon emissions. Yeah. And they did go down in, like, in 2020, but uh, they, they have gone back oh, up again. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's like, and then everyone else in the car is saying, oh, someone will think of something. Right, <laughs> and, I'm just, right. and I'm looking around saying, okay, who's going to think of what? Because I can see the cliff. And if I extrapolate what we're doing right now, we're going over. And here um, the and Democrats came up with this $3.5 trillion bill that would have done not just something, but a lot of something. And yes. we've got a couple of Democrats, well, at least one, who has explicitly come out and said, no, Kirsten Sinema. Yeah. It's just, it, yeah. it is so distressing. It's just crazy, yeah. yeah. And, and I just want to put in one more plug. I, I don't know if you know who Jim Massa is, M-A-S-S-A, I think it is. He's got a great series of videos out. He's a scientist up in Alaska doing some really good science YouTubes, mm -hmm. and um, he'd be a great guest. He's, I, I really like his presentation, so mm. there's just a little plug for some further you know, education. Yeah, well, thank you for that, Teresa. I'll check him out. I, I, the name sounds familiar, but I, it doesn't, I can't pull up anything, you know, a picture of a face or anything like that, so I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Teresa, thank you very much for the call. It's nice to hear from you. I, I appreciate it. Brad in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Hey, Brad, what's up? Hey, I lived in Arizona for seven years, and I was never really impressed with Kirsten Cinema. I think, you know, and it shows because when she first was campaigning, you know, very, very low key stuff, no big propositions, you know, nothing. She was very Well, she um, started out as a green. Lukewarm. And then she and yeah. then she endorsed Here's Bernie Sanders and she said she wow. she proclaimed herself to be a progressive. And now she's proclaiming herself to be part of the problem solver, no labels thing, which is funded by Wall Street. Yeah. And here's here's my point. I think she is a self-cynical, self-serving person who's only interested in her reelection. I agree. She loves her designer labels, and that kind of stuff costs money to pay for. Yeah. And I'll take my comments off there. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Brad. I, you know, I get it. The analogy that I've mentioned in the past is Roseanne Barr, you know, a politician who, who went from being a green to running for president on another third party to suddenly supporting Donald Trump, basically going wherever the news media would follow her, wherever, whatever would get her the most publicity. And I think it's just, it's unfortunate. I think it's sad, but you know, Hey, it's there. Stephen in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Stephen, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, it's kind of like your uh, double Santa Claus theory. I'm thinking that really it's the Republicans that cause us to uh, have to raise taxes because they only support the military, police department, and the fire department because it protects their assets domestically and abroad. And that... Uh, well, also, a lot of their assets are manufacturing things for the police departments and the military. I mean, and, and Reagan was the one who shifted, you know, who, who started the program where military gear would go right to our police departments. This was all to help the defense contractors. And remember the New World Order, uh, oh, Bush, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, Bush Poppy and Bush. Reagan. Yeah. When, remember Bush. when they discussed the New World Order <laughs> and do. they said, we can't raise... Uh, workers' wages in this country until third world countries and competitor countries um, do the same thing. 
yeah. because the markets wouldn't be fair. But they don't realize the cost of living in third world countries in China is a lot different than here. Oh, yeah. The, the whole neoliberal free trade thing has been a disaster, uh, you know, for some time. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue to be a, a disaster. I, I, I'm with you. Stephen, thank you for that. That's kind of another topic, but uh, uh, one of these days we'll get into it. Kevin in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hey, hey Kevin, what's up? Hey, Thomas, first time caller, and I, I enjoy your show. Thank but you. Firstly, Cinema would not be real. Keeping that attitude and how she's behaving, she would not be real. Oh, she's toast she in 2024. Fall. But, you know, Paul Ryan, when he left when he left the House of Representatives, he took $7 million with him. Yeah. Another thing, uh, Tom, what I think needs to be done, because, you know, this voter, as a black person, this voter uh, has got to be, this, this, these voter bills have to be. At the pass, right? Yeah. Not only that, infra- infrastructure it looks like it's not going to pass now because of cinema. That has to pass. Mm-hmm. I mean, Biden and and Harris administration had to show that they're doing something for for the uh, voters because otherwise, with the suppression of the votes, and people do go out and vote, some people just won't vote. They'll, you know, it's, 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 it's oh, suppression and, and people not doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and let me put a punctuation mark on that, Kevin. You know, there's no number one how it disheartens people, but number two, uh, the guy who runs one of Stacey Abrams' organizations in Georgia, when he was asked, you know, if if we can't, if if they can't undo the filibuster and pass the For the People Act so that the Georgia law can get knocked down, you know, what's going to happen in 2022? And he said, we're effed. I mean, you know, it's like, that's it. You know, it's, uh, they, they are, they are act as we speak right now in this very moment, they are replacing in black neighborhoods in, in downtown, in, in Atlanta, they are replacing uh, African-American election officials with white Republicans who are going to make sure that the, that the vote turns out the right way. I mean, this is, this is nuts, this takeover. Kevin, I got to move along, but thank you so much for the call. And uh, thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. I, I look forward to a future conversation where we have a little more time. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Dealing with oligarchy. Dealing with white supremacy. Dealing with right-wing crazies. We got a big lift. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, on the line with us is our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books, his most recent the Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. And R.D. Wolf with two Fs.com, also uh, one of his websites. And you can tweet him at Prof. Wolf with two Fs. And Professor Wolf, I, I have my uh, newsletter here from the Center for Economic and Policy Research, Dean Baker's group. And they're noting that uh, GDP rose 6.5% in the second quarter. So we're now back above the pre-pandemic level of economic output, the growth is still strong, profit is up uh, you know, among American corporations, savings rate is up to 10%. Um, some good economic signs um, on the one hand. On the other hand, we've got this attempt by the Democrats, this $3.5 trillion bill and, and, this, and then this smaller $550 billion bill, they're calling the $1 trillion bill, um, to put together our infrastructure. And Kirsten Sinema has come out and said, no, I'm not going to you know, pass that, and so, you know, which has got a lot of Democrats really freaked out. What happens if we don't continue to move away from the last 40 years of neoliberalism and austerity and move back into the economy as it, as it worked before Reagan. What happens if we can't pull that off with this kind of legislation? Well, then we're going to go further down the road that we've been going down, and that's a very, very bad economic prospect. Let's be really clear. For the last 40 years, the mantra, the religion, if you like, has been a kind of economic fundamentalism, very like its religious parallel. And that fundamentalism said everything is better done by the private sector than by the government. Everything is efficient in the private sector, inefficient in the government, etc., etc. Well, we now have the results a neglect of something typically done by governments, which is how it gets done in every other country, namely attending to the infrastructure, which is very expensive, which is risky, which is more important than most other things governments do. Uh, but the notion that if you leave it to the private sector, they would somehow take care of it, well, we see the result a collapsed infrastructure, an infrastructure way behind other countries. And so, yes, the Democrats see here yet again an opportunity, if they're successful, to do something about this, to have the government undertake the kinds of major infrastructure programs that, of course, are more expensive now 
because they were delayed, are more contentious now because the Republicans have mobilized uh, forces to be critical uh, because they come out of this 40-year fundamentalism. Uh, so I'm very worried. I think it may very well not pass. And then, as your question implies, we're going to have an even greater uh, descent of our economy. Look, we have monumental economic problems. The 6.5% you began with, that's a bounce back from a catastrophic collapse last year. Uh, countries around the world are showing comparable special numbers in the second quarter of this year because we've gotten it going again. But we still have a long way to go to make up for what happened last year. Meanwhile, inequality is getting worse. Uh, the very processes that we neglected over the last 40 years are like those proverbial chickens coming home to roost. You know, when, when Phil Graham uh, went on the floor of the Senate in 1999 and said, uh, we don't need Glass-Steagall anymore because it's worked so well, I, you know, I think if he had tried saying that, you know, the, 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 that, that uh, you know, allowed in banks to start gambling with our money, basically. Uh, I think if he had said that 30 years earlier when there were people in the Senate who had lived through the Great Depression, uh, he would have been laughed off the floor of the Senate. Uh, Arnold Toynbee famously said, you know, when the last man dies who remembers the horrors of the last great war, the next great war becomes inevitable. And, and it seems like every 80 years we just go through these cycles of, of forgetting those, the same stupid mistakes and the oligarchs coming in and taking over. And, and you know, 80 years ago uh, now, it was, uh, you know, the, the, the Republican Great Depression. 80 years before that, it was the oligarchs in the South who rose up and tried to destroy democracy with the Civil War. 80 years before that, it was the British East India Company uh, that, you know, that we fought a, a revolution against. Um, are you, are, what, are, what are your feelings about the possibilities that we can actually push our way through this or fight our way through it successfully for what will be the fourth time in the, in the history of the United States? Well, you know, here's the irony. In many ways, it strikes me that we are now on something psychologists would call a kind of death trip, uh, a determination of the richest people in the society simply to accumulate ever more. We've just gone through, we're still in it, the worst combination imaginable in our society, an economic crash rivaling that of the 1930s, and at the same time, the worst public health disaster uh, in a century. We've never had these two kinds of things happening to us at the same time. And they need a massive, coordinated mobilization of both the public and the private resources. Only the government can do that. And if you're in a society in which the government is hamstrung because of this fundamentalist religion that somehow has to uh, favor the private and hobble the public, yeah, then you get super rich people during the last year becoming even richer while we don't vaccinate half our people, while the vaccination rate in Africa is 3%, which means that continent is incubating the new variants to threaten us. The craziness of this, which would be extended by not passing uh, the infrastructure bill, really suggests a society that is engaged in self-destruction and needs really profound shake-up 
to get out of it. Now, much of the insanity that the Reagan administration brought us um, came out of the Chicago School of Economics, out of out of your profession. You know, the Milton Friedman and, and Robert Bork and their buddies. Uh, you know, changing the way that we treated monopolies, changing, you know, dropping the top tax rate from 74% down to 25%, deregulating corporations, all these kinds of things. Um, to what extent in, in your field, uh, among your colleagues in economics, has that whole, you know, right-wing neoliberal uh, and, and worse uh, perspective been discredited, or is it still, is it still alive? Is the, is the Friedman and, and von Mises and whatnot school still is that still a potent force? Absolutely is. And I wish it weren't, but it is. Uh, economics as a profession, you know, most of the folks that, that are the people you know, like Milton Friedman and the others, are tenured professors, as I have been most of my life. And you cannot get rid of them. They're there, and they typically, in American universities, uh, when they hire younger folks, hire people who they find attractive, which are people who agree with them by and large. And so the profession is way behind the ball in terms of what's happening. There have been a few people, Paul Krugman, uh, Joe Stiglitz, people like that, who were shaken over the last 20 years by what they were willing to see, and so they've stopped being uh, that kind of neoclassical, we call them, economist. But they haven't gone much more than back towards a kind of Keynesian uh, out of the 1930s. They think, and I believe they're deeply mistaken, that all we need again is another dose of Keynesian, you know, New Deal type of stuff. But the problem I keep having when I discuss with them, and, and I went to school with them, and I know them personally, too, um, the problem is we're in a different place. Mm -hmm. We don't have what we had in the 1930s. We have a much bigger private sector. We have it much deeper in debt. We have horrific inequality that has undone most of what the New Deal did. We have a major, serious competitor in the People's Republic of China, which we are not able to neither stop nor control. These were situations, these are new problems Plus, when I say again that we've had a major uh, collapse of our public health system together with our economic system, you need a massive overhaul. But the attempt of the few Democrats willing to do that has been stymied by the Republicans, but also by the conservatives uh, who are still living in the new neoliberal Reagan uh, era in which they thought it was necessary to be a booster of the private sector, no matter what the cost to social cohesion. And so our society isn't cohesive, it's divided. It's a very serious denial problem that's at the root of our difficulties. Amen. We've got, we're facing some really serious challenges here. Professor Richard Wolf, yep. it's always good speaking with you. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Good talking to you. We'll be right back with more of the news of the day and, and your calls as well. Diamond in Hollywood. Hey, Diamond, what's up? Hi, Tom. Hey. I'm just calling. Basically, I slightly disagree with you with regard to the progressives saying, you know, people saying, oh, Newsom's doing a great job in staying home. I'm talking to some of my progressive friends and myself. A lot of us are disappointed that he opened everything just all of a sudden. 
But what we have to realize is, what's the alternative? Our alternative is, you know, a Republican who's going to, you know, be even worse. So what I've done is I've called, and I urge uh, callers in California to do this, is I wrote Newsom, and I said, thank you. Thank you for, you know, being strong again against Mm. the Republicans. Thank you for, you know, saying everybody needs to get vaccinated. Now we need to be tougher on mass mandates. My friend and I are performers, but we do not mind, you know, having a vaccine verification for bars and venues like that. We think that only vaccinated people should be allowed to do that or people that have tested. And I mean, tested not 72 hours, but the day before they visit, because, you know, we need to get the virus down. And in the news today, there was, I think it was the CDC who said, you know, if everybody wears masks, and everybody vaccinates in two weeks, we can get the Delta under control. Oh, yeah, but that would require everybody. And we're at about, you know, a little more than half of the country is is fully vaccinated. With regard to Gavin Newsom, the thing that concerns me, Diamond, and maybe maybe you know something I don't, but I've seen uh, at least a half a dozen articles in the last, I don't know, two, three weeks suggesting that polling among voters in California suggests that the Republicans who are going to turn out to to evict Gavin Newsom are highly motivated and fully intending to vote and that Democrats by and large are you know don't take this seriously and are not intending to vote and that concerns me. Well I think that if people realize that you know my response from Newsom was you know every time somebody calls Every time someone writes Newsom, they have to write it down, just like you say on your blurb for everybody to call Washington. Mm-hmm. Progressives need to call Newsom. He does listen. And therefore, we can get more impetus for people to actually want to go to the polls more progr- if more progressives yes. just realize that. So yeah. I think that can draw people, and then Newsom will get you know, it won't get recalled. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, from your lips to God's ears, Diamond, I, I, you know, I, it concerns me tremendously because it looks like, you know, all over the country, wherever there's a little chink in the armor, wherever there's a little niche where, where the Republicans can kind of burrow in and, and damage things, you know, screw things up, create chaos, they are on it and they got a lot of money behind them. So, Diamond, I, I have to run. Democrats need to be too. I, I agree. I agree. So let's get out there and work. Diamond, thank you so much for the call. It's always nice to hear from you. I appreciate it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Who Owns the Future by Jason Lanier. This is from Chapter 16, titled Complaint is Not Enough, subtitled Governments Are Learning the Tricks of Siren Servers. A revolutionary narrative is common in digital politics. Broadly speaking, that narrative counterpoises the inclusiveness, quickness, and sophistication of online social processes against the sluggish, exclusive club of old-fashioned government or corporate power. It's a narrative that unites activists in the Arab Spring with Chinese and Iranian online dissidents, and with tweeters in the United States, private 
Pirate parties in Europe, nouveau high-tech billionaires and folk hero rogue outfits like WikiLeaks. That particular idea of revolution misses the point, however, about how power in human affairs really works. It seeds the future of economics and places the entire burden on politics. In our digital revolution, we might depose an old source of dysfunctional center of power only to erect a new one that is equally dysfunctional. The reason is that online opposition to traditional power tends to promote new siren servers that in the long run are unlikely to do any better. Also, it's silly to think that only a particular sort of activist will benefit from a technology. It's not as though traditional power structures have been sealed in stasis while digital networking has risen. Instead, old forms of power have been gradually melded into highly effective modern siren servers. A modern, digitally networked national intelligence agency, such as the CIA, NSA, and our O-complex in the United States, illustrates this trend. A visit to one of these organizations feels very much like a visit to the Googleplex or a major high-tech finance venture. The same sorts of cheery recent PhDs from top schools cavort in an airy and playful environment with lots of glass and excellent coffee. Spymaster siren servers thrive in all countries by now. We tend to hear more about the excesses of foreign ones in China or even Britain, but the trend is universal. Nations increasingly recast themselves as siren servers in other ways as well. China, Iran, and to varying degrees all other nations wish to be the ultimate masters of digital information flow. The cliches are so familiar you can fill in the blanks. Developing country X bans certain websites or filters the internet for certain words, but courageous citizens and stalwart Silicon Valley companies provide sneaky ways to contravene those restrictions. Or rich country Y spies on all its citizens online, even though it's a democracy, in the hopes of catching terrorists. It's easy to motivate a coalition in opposition to control freakery in digital statesmanship. Because democracy advocates and network entrepreneurs hate it equally. While there have been some interesting challenges to state power, particularly in the Arab Spring, elsewhere it hasn't been so easy for such coalitions to have much of an effect. I suspect that the role of digital networking in the Arab Spring was a novelty effect. When governments engage in the siren server game, they get good at it fast. It appears that governments are getting better at getting ahead of citizen cyber movements than commercial schemes which consistently outwit regulators. In the long term, I worry about the efforts of online activists who hope to support democracy. I worry that the efforts of online activists who hope to support democracy will backfire the most just when they seem to be succeeding. Opposing a particular type of siren server, even when the target is the latest cyber concept of a nation state, doesn't really help when your actions only serve to promote yet other siren servers. For instance, Activists use social media to complain about lost benefits and opportunities, but social media, as we currently know it, organized around siren servers, in other words, you know, giant, giant uh, servers, uh, operations, also gradually concentrates capital and shrinks opportunities for ordinary people. Within a democracy, the resulting increased income concentration gradually enriches an elite, which is likely to promote candidates who will support yet further concentration. On the world stage, the same conundrum makes it harder for developing nations to sprout good jobs for educated people because information flow is currently fated to be free. No one expects Twitter to help create jobs in Cairo. It's impossible to divorce politics from economic reality. Economic interdependence has lessened the chances of war between interconnected nations. 
This is the gift I thanked Walmart for earlier. Unfortunately, by forcing more and more value off the books as the world economy turns into an information economy, the ideal of free information can erode economic interdependence between nations. Nations have been so far more willing to engage in cyber attacks on each other than other kinds of attacks because the information sphere is largely not on the books, which would otherwise reflect how globally interdependent it really is. Chinese interests have hacked American corporations like Google, but they would hardly be motivated to toy with the infrastructure in America that delivers Chinese goods. A warehouse should not be perceived as being in a separate economic category than a website. China is as economically dependent on an American website's security as it is on the truck that delivers goods made in China. But that dependency doesn't show up adequately in international accounting. Siren servers are narcissists, blind to where values come from, including the web of global interdependence that is at the core of their own value. The book is Who Owns the Future by Jason Lanier. Who Owns the Future? Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. And let's see here, Tony in Fort Worth, Texas. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind today? Great show today, Tom, as always. Thank you. Yeah. In Texas, everyone that's yelling about vaccine passports, here's a little thing that Texas has that our oblivious senator doesn't know about or doesn't want to acknowledge. When you go in to get a vaccine, you're given a card. Well, you're given a questionnaire, and then once you get your first shot, you're given a card. You know, it's got your name, your, it's, got your, it's got your information on it. It has the type of shot that you have. It has the date of the first shot and the second shot. And at the same time, you're also registered in the state's registry. And you also have the option of reporting that you've been vaccinated to your primary physician. That's correct. And and at the same time, this, this card, you're given the card, which I have in my wallet right now, which to me, that kind of seems like a vaccine passport. You bet. You bet. And and now it's digital. You know, if you go, if you check out the V-Safe program from the CDC, they've got a vaccine passport there. They just haven't turned it into an app. But you can you can literally pull it up uh, you, after you fill out the stuff. It will connect to your state's database and pull out your information on your shot and build a, a little database for you with what, what looks like a vaccine passport. It's just that, you know, they, like, like I said, they haven't turned it into an app yet. You know, there's companies that are actually doing this right now. It's not some pie in the sky thing. And I think this is essential. I think it's critical. I, I think it's, it really, it's really important if we're gonna get back to normal. Tony, I, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. That was a great point. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.